Amen. Have you been blessed? Obviously, I'm not Tony Moore. That's who we were expecting this weekend. And uh, so Pastor Bernardo asked me to kind of jump in at the last minute. And uh, I hope that the time we spend here together studying his word will be well spent. The passage in Matthew that Nia read for us this morning is quite an incredible story. And because of the statement that Jesus makes at the end, it has also caused a lot of controversy around the circle. Is it possible that there is something that our gracious God could not forgive? And if there is, as Jesus seems to indicate, an unpardonable sin, why of all things would it be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is going on here? Is the Holy Spirit the stern member of the Godhead? The Father and the Son are the friendly ones? Oh, but you better not mess with the Holy Spirit. Or a father and son may be acting like older siblings, rallying around a weaker, younger sibling. I don't care what you do to me, but if you mess with my little brother... Mm -hmm. As we seek to unpack the statement this morning, I invite you to get your Bibles or your holy devices and look up with me John chapter 16 verse 13. So that's John chapter 16, verse 13. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. So the role of the Spirit is to guide us into truth. He is there to speak to our mind, help us to see the truth, and guide us to God. So let's back up a little bit in the story here and see what is going on. As Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, people who had witnessed the event were starting to wonder aloud, could this be the son of David? Could this be the long-awaited Messiah? And it was this that prompted the Pharisees to try and discredit Jesus by the most ludicrous assertion. It is by Satan that this guy is driving out demons. Satan driving out Satan. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and that, by the way, Pharisees, is that what you say about your own people when they drive out demons? It was just plain ridiculous. And just in case it wasn't obvious, Jesus spelled it out. But what was behind the statement? And why would Jesus then suddenly make the statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being the unpardonable sin, both now and for eternity? See, the Holy Spirit was doing His job of leading people to the truth, of convicting people of what was right. 
And he was convicting people that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. The Pharisees themselves were convicted of this. If you turn in your Bibles over to John chapter 3, so just a few pages back, John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, who you will remember was a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council, comes to Jesus at night, notice the statement with which he opens the conversation. John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know, plural, we know, you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So the Pharisees were convicted by the Holy Spirit that Jesus had come from God. But for whatever reason, he didn't fit into their blueprint of how the coming of the Messiah was going to play out. If anything, the way things were going, Jesus was messing everything up for them. And so they suppressed the conviction of the Holy Spirit I pretend that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but some troublesome usurper to trick, trap, discredit, and dispose of. And when the people were being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the same thing that they were once convicted of, oh, they had to shut that down and quick. You've probably experienced this before. If something is a sore point, you're usually much more aggressive in shutting it down. It didn't matter how ridiculous it sounded, all it had to be is loud and shocking enough to keep people from believing what they had seen and what they had been convicted of. You know the old adage, if your argument is weak, shout louder. Or resort to name calling, either one works. The reason Jesus made the statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was because he knew what was behind their statement. They had been convicted of the truth, and they were trying very hard to drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit within them. When the people voiced their own convictions, they felt compelled to shut their convictions down as well. Now, this wasn't important because the Holy Spirit gets easily offended. It is important because if we actively work to drown out and contradict the work of the Holy Spirit in our minds, it becomes very difficult for God to reach us. Eventually, reaching a point where there is nothing more that He can do for us. Toward the end of his ministry, Jesus told a story to the Pharisees. And the moral of the story was, you have Moses and the prophets. If you can't believe them and what they say about the Messiah, even if someone were to come up from the dead to tell you the truth, it would not make a blind bit of difference. They were that far gone. And would you know it? 
That is exactly what happened. The problem with going against the Holy Spirit is not that it makes God angry. It is that if we persist in it, we will become so desensitized, so hardened, so far gone, that God will no longer be able to reach us. There would be nothing more that He could do for us. We will have completely cut ourselves off from God, who is the only source of life, and the sure result will be death. Listen to this statement by Ellen White in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 235, and I believe we have this on the screen, since I figured you didn't walk around carrying Selected Messages with you. She says, We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. We saw this in the story of Pharaoh. When Moses and Aaron first show up and tell him to let people, God's people go, he feels no need to even entertain the thought. Ah, sure, they produced a few miracles, but... That wasn't overly impressive for him. So God sets out to completely dismantle the false belief system of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped a whole host of gods who were supposed to have been manifested in everything, from flies, frogs, to the weather, the river Nile, the sun, and ultimately the pharaoh the person in whom human and divine was supposed to have met. And one by one, through the plagues, God shows all these Egyptian deities to be completely impotent to do anything within what was supposed to be their realm. By contrast, whatever happened, Whatever this God said through his messenger Moses seemed to happen. The whole spectacle was designed to make people sit up and pay attention. It was designed to acquaint them with the true God. And many responded to it. But not Pharaoh. He, of course, had the most to lose by acknowledging God because his entire power base was founded on Egyptian mythology, which said that he came from the gods. Now, at first, the plagues were just mere nuisances. And even so, after being overrun by, say, frogs, and then later having to sweep them out of the house and from the streets and pile them up into these stinking piles for disposal, you were probably turned off the idea of 
praying to the frogs. But Pharaoh was unmoved. So the plagues escalated and started causing some real damage. Each time there was a warning, and each time it went unheeded. After a while, even Pharaoh's own counselors came to him and said, just let them go. Don't you realize that Egypt is completely ruined? But Pharaoh wouldn't. And so finally the firstborn died all over Egypt. The firstborn were dedicated to serve as priests in Egyptian temples. If the Egyptian gods could not protect even those dedicated to their service, it was the final nail in the coffin for the Egyptian mythology. So Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. But then he changes his mind yet again and takes off to chase them down in the wilderness. There, Pharaoh watches as the pillar moves from among the Israelites and stands between them and his army. He watches the Red Sea part and the Israelites walking through it. How far gone do you have to be that after all that you have been through, all that you have just witnessed, there is nothing in you that says, you know what? This might not be a good idea. Instead, he charges into the sea after them, and both he as he and his entire army is wiped out. We have a hard time with that the plagues, the mass drowning in the Red Sea, any number of stories in the Old Testament where, where God is using force and people suffer and die. How could a loving God do that? It is hard to read these stories. But if you have done any kind of research on the gods that these nations worshipped and how they worshipped them, when you read about the things that went on, you find yourself pleading along with the prophet Habakkuk, God, do something. See, much of the worship of these gods revolved around the celebration of fertility. And they had temple prostitutes, both male and female, for that purpose. Yep. Their temples were essentially brothels. And when you went to the temple, you really knew you had worshipped. Then there was self-mutilation, even sacrificing children on the altars, all in hopes of winning the favor of these gods. And to make matters worse, these gods weren't even real. People were being exploited, brutalized, and even killed for made-up gods. Statues made from wood, stone, or metal, who couldn't do any harm, nor could they do any good. If you were God, how would you set about fixing this? If the belief is that these gods bring, say, rain, 
and therefore prosperity, as in the case of Baal, what would you do? You can expose Baal for the fiction that he is by stopping the rain. But a drought is a terrible thing to go through. After a while, people have nothing to eat, nothing to drink. How could a loving God do something like that? But if he continued to send the rain so the crops grow and people prosper, they will merely credit this fortune to Baal. It's working, people say, as they continue doing the horrible things they did to continue to win the favor of Baal. There is no good option here. If you were God, how would you do it better? Maybe wiggle the wires in their brains a little bit? Well, then you have R2-D2 and 3-CPO, robots who merely respond to your programming. Is that what God wants His children to be? Is that what you want to be? In a world where the most powerful God is the one who gets worshipped and taken seriously, how do you insert gentle Jesus, meek and mild? You don't. He'd get sent packing before he even had a chance to do anything. But to show himself as powerful just so that he could be taken seriously enough for long enough to teach people a better way, God runs the risk of looking absolutely terrible to those of us on the outside. But look at the mindset that he is having to deal with. Just as an example, have a quick look at 2 Chronicles chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 22 and 23. 2 Chronicles 28, starting in 22nd verse. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus, who had defeated him, for he thought, listen to this, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they will help me. How do you propose to reach someone who is operating within such a framework? If you give them blessing and comfort, they will only credit these fictional gods and continue worshipping them. If you want to put a stop to the practice, you have to expose the gods for the frauds and worthless things which they are. But that means either bringing or allowing some kind of calamity. You essentially have to let them get their hides tanned. And then we howl in protest. God, how could you? The children, God, the children. Well, maybe the children don't like being burnt as sacrifices to these fictitious gods either. Oh, God, you have to do something about that too. Well, what do you propose? 
He could tell them to stop. In fact, he did. It didn't work. As any of you who are parents know, often as not, the kids will pay you no heed unless they know that you will back it up with something that they will not like. And so ultimately, with all these bad options, God will always lean on the side of dealing with the eternal consequences. For some, like King Manasseh and the Apostle Paul, the lessons of harsh discipline bore fruit, and they did turn their lives around. For others, it became obvious that no matter what God did, these individuals have shut themselves off and He could not reach them. God will do whatever it takes, no matter how unpleasant it may be, because He does not want anyone to be lost. In Ezekiel 33, He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. When it is all said and done, and we are in the new Jerusalem after the millennium, there will be one moment in time when all the people who have ever lived are gathered in one place. We look over the wall, and there outside the city among the lost are some who are near and dear to us. In that final hour, what will be the one question you will demand of God? Is there anything else that could have been done to save my loved one? Is there something that you could have done, God, that would have helped them see the truth and turn their life around? And what is the response you want to hear? Well, there, there was something I could have tried, but, you know, it would have been quite painful, so I decided not to. Is that the response you're looking for? In the final analysis, you want to know that everything possible was done for your loved one to help them discern the truth. As the athletes say, you want God to have left it all on the field. Nothing left undone that could have been done. And this is what God wants too. We are all His children. We are all near and dear to God. He will not give up on us without trying everything possible. The Apostle Peter says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In his letter to Timothy, Paul says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men and women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God doesn't want to lose a single one of us. But of course, we know that many will 
be lost. I'd like to share with you something really cool. Something that I think really speaks to the heart of God. Now we all know that those who are saved are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. How did those names get there? Funny thing about the book of life, the Bible never talks about how the names get in there. Revelation 17.8 seems to suggest that this book was written from the foundation of the world. The only other references are names already being in the book of life or names coming out of the book of life, but never of names being put into the book. So it stands to reason that at the beginning, God put all our names in the book of life. Let's have a look at a few verses to see what I'm talking about. Have a look at Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Moses came down from Sinai to find Israelites drunk and disorderly dancing around the golden calf. And so he pleads with God. Exodus 32, starting in verse 31. It says, So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Now let's have a look at Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, David is praying for his enemies. And here's what he says. Psalm 69, verse 27. He says to God, Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Charming fellow, right? Don't want to be his enemy. And then there's one, this one in Revelation chapter 3, one that's probably well known to us. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Christ himself is speaking to the apostle John. He says, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. God has put all of our names in the book of life in the hope that we will decide to leave them there. If we start straying, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and correction. If we persist in our rebellion, God will use whatever methods necessary to help us see and acknowledge the truth and turn our, our lives around. He will leave it all on the field trying to win us over, trying to persuade us not to take our name out of the book of life. He will not make it easy for us to be lost. 
In fact, he will make it very difficult and uncomfortable to be lost. Not because he's mad with us, but because he is desperate to get through to us. But if we are determined to drown out the Holy Spirit and do our own thing, there is nothing more He can do for us. If we want nothing to do with Him, there is little else God can do but let us go. As we close, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It is so crucial that we understand this because it really deals with a whole issue. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Romans 1, 18. It says, The wrath of God. The what? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And then he says again in verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts and a whole list of things. And then again in verse 28, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind so that they do what ought not to be done. If we are determined to ignore the Holy Spirit and the truth that He brings us in His wrath, Interesting word there. In his wrath, what will God do? He will sadly let us go. God can forgive us all day long, every hour on the hour. But if we are determined to go our own way, there is nothing he can do for us. 
and he will cry just as he did in the book of Hosea saying, my people are determined to turn from me. But how can I give you up? I am glad that I serve a God who will leave no stone unturned in trying to reach us. I am grateful for a God who will make it very difficult to commit the unpardonable sin. I admire our God for valuing our freedom and individuality so much that He is willing to reason with us, teach us, and discipline us all in the hope that we will ultimately choose Him. Yet if we don't choose Him, He will honor that choice and let us go, even though it will cause Him great sadness and pain. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John looks up to heaven and sees an open door. And Jesus tells him, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And then Jesus turns around and says, I stand at the door and knock. God's door is wide open to us. The only closed door is the door of our hearts. God is calling us to open that door so that He may come in. It is my hope that you will choose to respond to His call and make a decision to open the door of your heart. Make a decision to leave your name in the book of life so that when the roll is called up yonder, we will all be there. Amen.